Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by the Aviation Careers Expo 2012, Brisbane, August 25th. Find out more at aviationaustralia.aero expo. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Well, day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 90 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and joining me as always, the soon-to-be ballooning in the north of the state, Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? <laughs> Not too bad, mate. I'm doing a bit of ballooning here, according to the doctor. I've put on a bit too much weight. Oh, no. Well, gee, was you want to take a leaf out of my book, pal? What? Salad leaf? Yeah, no, well done about that. No, no, I'm managing to maintain my Jenny Craigized figure, Grant, but uh, I could uh, afford to lose a few more, depending on who you're talking to? Yeah, well, I'm up over 100 kilos and it's scaring me, so it's time for me to work it off a bit more. Oh, that's all right. Well, just don't put so much ballots in that balloon. Yeah, no, I'll just, I think if I just cut back and only drink one slab of beer a night, I'll be fine. And it's been a couple of years since you headed up to uh, around Mildura Way to uh, start your balloon license training and all that sort of stuff. So is that what you're heading back up there to do? Yeah, every two years they do a session called The Lake and it's held at Lake Kalalarain at uh, just out of Mildura, about 100 k's out. And uh, yeah, a whole bunch of balloonatics get together there. A lot of training, uh, a lot of uh, new balloonists flying there as well, uh, building their hours and things like that. It's uh, big, wide open spaces, lots of uh, plowed fields, um, grain, things like that, but also lots of scrubland. So uh, pretty good for seeing some native Australian bushland. Yeah, well, uh, Mildura is pretty topical. Uh, you know, I was up there myself at the start of the year, very hot, and uh, wasn't very successful because, uh, you know, as our listeners might recall, my car decided to uh, kill itself on the way back. So I'm, I don't think I'll be heading up there again anytime soon. <laughs> well, it's going to be a little cooler than we you were there, mate. But, yeah, I'm taking one of our four-wheel drives up. I'm, uh, I'm bringing up the, the balloon I'll be flying and uh, meeting up with a lot of the crew up there, going up on Saturday and then staying up there for the week and coming back the next Sunday. So, yeah, a couple of weekends I'll be away. Yeah, sounds like too much fun. Uh, so long as the weather is our friend, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting lots of flying in. Okay, well, uh, another uh, very packed show coming up a little bit later on. Kathy Mix will be joining us, and uh, she and I are going to be chatting to Australian author Justin Sheedy about his uh, novel uh, Nor the Years Condemn, uh, which is a historical work of fiction centred around the journey of an RAAF pilot uh, back in World War II. An excellent novel. Uh, good to see some Australian authors uh, getting out there and uh, getting it published. Kathy's also got some news for us about the kind and aerodrome, in fact. As we record this tonight, she's been off to the council meeting along with a, a great turnout of uh, pilots and uh, other people that are interested in keeping that airport uh, going and uh, she's got some great news to report a bit later on. But uh, first, we're going to go back in time just a few weeks ago to the Wings over Illawarra Air Show and uh, touch on the subject of the current state of the market and uh, aircraft ownership in general. Aviation advertisers Ben Morgan, myself and Anthony Crichton-Brown sat down around the microphone and had a bit of a chat about all of these issues and uh, quite an interesting topic. Let's have a listen. We're here with uh, Ben Morgan from Aviation Appetizer. How are you, Ben? Very good, Steve. It's a wonderful day down here at uh, Wings over Illawarra. Spectacular turnout, and uh, for the first time in three years, some fairly spectacular weather as well. So, uh, three green. Yeah, it looks, looks, looks great. Now, tell us, mate, uh, you're one of the busiest blokes I know. Boy, it's hard to pin you down. You're always doing a million and one things, but it uh, looks like Aviation Advertiser, the website's changed a bit, and uh, things are uh, moving forward. 
Yeah, look, uh, um, basically the uh, the website's an ever-evolving product. Um, but uh, what drives that uh, evolution is uh, obviously the advances that we're making in uh, platform delivery. So focusing now uh, heavily on mobile devices and uh, tablet computing, uh, but also uh, the, uh, I guess, a strong drive uh, from our customers. The site's traffic has picked up uh, considerably. Uh, we're now going out to about 160,000 people across Australia, and that traffic is uh, causing us uh, new challenges like optimization and a whole range of other things. So uh, a fantastic opportunity though month to month to keep evolving the product, enhancing the product and bettering it. One of the things I've noticed actually, uh, which brings us around to one of the topics we want to discuss here is there's a lot of a lot of classifieds coming on. I guess it's a sign of the times. A lot of people seem to be selling their aircraft. It seems to me now if you're looking for an aircraft, it's a buyer's market, it seems like. An amazing statistic that not a lot of people would have access to, um, uh, which is one we have because we track what's going on in the market, and that is in the last four years, there has been about 5,200 individual aircraft brought to the market. And that's a really significant number considering that the general aviation fleet in Australia is made up of about 8,500 aircraft. <laughs> so uh, if you look at the process, if, if you've got roughly 70% of the market um, being advertised over a uh, you know two, three-year period, it's a significant sign that there are pressures uh, within the industry that are causing a great number of people uh, to uh, to advertise the aircraft in an attempt to get out. So I see it as a concern, um, but it's also offset on a second uh, point here, and that is there is such an enormous boom going on with recreational aviation. Uh, so a large portion of the GA aircraft sales that we're seeing are a migration, and uh, I experience uh, that on a daily basis in speaking to the people that are selling, and their feedback is I'm getting out of GA to then get into recreational flying uh, where they can operate uh, aircraft that are far more cost effective uh, per mile flown um, and the aircraft themselves are a much, li- much uh, lower price point to buy. It seems to me, and, and I should tell the audience that I've been going through a process now where I've been looking at ways of perhaps purchasing an aircraft to put on a line somewhere and um, we've been talking you and I about perhaps me purchasing a 150, 152 Aerobat. Flying schools don't seem to want them anymore. RA is where it's at. One operator told me recently, in fact, that um, he basically said a 152 or a Tomahawk, for that matter, is yesterday's airplanes. You know, I said to him, you know, if, if you put a Jabiru next to a 152, he said, I said, they fly the same. He said, well, you know that and I know that. He said, but if I put a Jabiru or, you know, a Technem or something modern next to a 152, he said, that's what they want. He said, that's what they'll go for every time. So it's, it seems interesting, and that's borne out with what I'm seeing in classifieds here, is that there's a lot of 150s and that sort of cl- uh, category of aircraft on the market. Steve, uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct, um, but I also see it as incredible short-sightedness on behalf of a lot of the flying schools. Um, there are no end of flying schools that have implemented uh, LSA light sport aircraft and have learnt the financial lessons of having aircraft that are just nowhere near as durable. Now, I'm certainly not saying that all LSA aircraft are uh, not capable of taking the punishing of a training environment, uh, but there are a number of brands that have been uh, put into training environments and they have been basically withdrawn after, say, five years of service. I think what's unique here is that uh, a lot of the flying schools are making the assumption uh, that students don't want uh, 150-152s or Tomahawks or uh, basic uh, Cherokees and the like because they see the aircraft as old technology. And I think largely um, a great deal of responsibility in this statement falls back to the aircraft owners and also the flying schools. An aircraft, in essence, is simply an airframe, and it's a renewable, regeneratable and ongoing product. It can fly 
fly uh, for a very significant amount of time. It just simply takes ongoing maintenance, inspection and routine. Uh, but to keep an aircraft current in today's market, it means an investment, an investment by either the flying school or the aircraft owners to upgrade panels. We're really lucky today to be sitting here having this interview watching some spectacular aircraft. Yeah. Owning their way out of the sky. Occupational hazard when you're doing these interviews. <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of these flying training schools, uh, you know, as I've said, they're making this statement that they don't want these aeroplanes purely because they look at it as being steam gauge technology. And I, you know, in the discussions that I have had, you know, a lot of flying schools will look at an LSA with uh, some glass cockpit technology in it. They'll then compare it to a Cessna 150, and they go, oh, you know, the students want this glass cockpit. Well, I'm sure, yes, the students do want the gadgetry. We live in a gadgetry, you know, technology technology age. Everybody wants access to the latest iPad, the latest iPhone. So when you get in an aeroplane and suddenly you're looking at dials, I guess there is a perception that this is an old aircraft. Um, I think the, the, the key component of it is though, what are owners doing uh, from an ownership perspective to keep the aircraft as a platform current and, and relative to where we are today for flying training. And that's where I see the greatest problem in the market. It's not the aircraft types. Uh, behind us right now, we've got a, a, a <laughs> Cicada toboggan, I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about, uh, and a, um, a Piper uh, Archer. Now, these aircraft uh, by no means are old, dead aeroplanes. Certainly, they're 30-year-old aeroplanes. Uh, certainly, you can go out and buy yourself for half a million dollars today a updated version of this aeroplane with glass cockpit, but you're getting the same aeroplane. It's very, very you know, infinitesimal, minor, you know, kind of fractional differences in the aircraft product. So, you know, I see it as a problem that owners aren't investing enough of their own money into the technology needed inside of the aeroplanes to keep them current and also the money needed to keep the aircraft presented well. Anthony, you've had experience as an instructor. I mean, what would your take be on this? If you're out there instructing somebody now, I mean, would you prefer an older aircraft that's perhaps even a little more challenging to fly? I find the, the LSAs that I've flown quite docile and when you, we've talked about this before. I, I wonder whether they're actually the best training tool just from that standpoint. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, maybe it's a little bit off the topic of uh, aircraft ownership, but in terms of what the highest value trainer is, if I was to uh, open a flying school with unlimited funds, I'd open it up with Popper Cubs or Satabrias or something with, a, with a, a basic aircraft with good controllability, tailwheel, and the student's not going to get worried about the technology fiddling with uh, instruments, fiddling with the latest Garmin 1000 uh, navigation display. They're going to learn how to stick and run and fly the aeroplane. You can always build those other things on top of the basic flying fundamentals. I mean, Neil Armstrong learned to fly in a, uh, in a predecessor of a Citaria and look what he went. Next thing you know, he's landing on the moon. Yeah. He, didn't need to go and, he didn't need to go and learn to fly in the Apollo capsule, did he? And that's the, and that's the way you build on. I think the, there is a bit of a, uh, a trend these days that Ben just touched on with the technology is that everyone wants to fly the aeroplane with a glass cockpit Garmin 1000 and they forget the fact that it's actually an aeroplane wrapped around this technology. If you want to if you want to play with technology, that's great and, it's, and, it's, and they're fantastic things to have in aeroplanes because they provide you with traffic warnings, they give you terrain warnings, they give you, you can never get lost in one of those things, you won't fly in a controlled airspace, all those safety features, but they've got to be secondary to flying the aeroplane sticking rudder. So to answer your question in a roundabout fashion, uh, looking back I would say that I wish I learned to fly on a tailwheel aeroplane that was basic stick and rudder. I didn't. I learned to fly in Cessna 150s and 152s, and I didn't know what I was missing out on until I went back after I became an airline pilot and started flying tailwheel aeroplanes, and I wish I started there in the first place. That's just my view. I'm sure you'll get mail over this. Well, let's talk about buying an aircraft. Now, Anthony, you own, a, you own your own Pitts aircraft. Yep. Ben, you've had plenty of aircraft in your family over the time, and of course you're in the aircraft sales business. 
boy, I have I learned a lot about uh, in the last month or so since I went flying up to uh, Tamora, actually, and this has been the genesis for me, is wanting to get out and thinking, boy, it's so expensive to rent an aircraft now. Maybe I should buy an aircraft and maybe put it on the ramp at a flying school somewhere and maybe get a little bit of money for it while other people are renting it. And I don't know whether that's going to work for me either. And I'm, I just sort of throw my hands in the air at the moment and think I'm a little frustrated and I'm not sure what to do. But you've gone through the experience of importing an aircraft to Australia. You've bought and sold within Australia. I'd be interested in your views about, you know, what's the best way to do that and what, what are some of the things that people should consider um, when, they're, when they're buying an aircraft? I can only go by experience. I was, uh, I was scratching around in the dark when I bought my aeroplane and I was just taking advice from lots of different people who had bought aeroplanes. I think ultimately buying an aeroplane is a bit like buying a house. You've got to do it to experience it to understand what it's all about. And if you're going to buy your first aeroplane, I guess my advice would be get good advice from people you can trust and then start small. Unless you're, you know, got, unless you've got millions of dollars to throw around. If, you, if you're doing it on a budget, um, start small and budget for overruns. Importing from the States, if I was going to do it again, um, I'd make sure I had a good mechanic that could do a, uh, an inspection for me over there and I'd go over there with him and do it with him and, and look, look over his shoulder. I've got a friend that imported an aeroplane from the States and he had a very reputable, uh, they call them A&P mechanics, we call them lamies here, go over his aircraft for him and, and uh, gave it a clean bill of health, came to Australia, came out of the sea container, had a crack in the crankcase. Now, pretty fundamental thing that an AMP mechanic should pick up. Didn't. He just learnt from experience, you know, and he did all the right things and he's owned aeroplanes before. Anyone can get caught out. So, um, I had a pretty good run. I've had a few little technical hitches along the way, but I had a pretty good run. My aeroplane um, came out of the container as it uh, looked in the photos. I know a lot of people have had different experiences where the, the seller has sent them all these beautiful photos and videos and stuff that were taken 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it came out of the container, it looked nothing like what they expected. Mine came out, it looks like it was expe- I expected. It went together and it flew pretty much. I had a few little hiccups, which um, I wasn't expecting, but hey, that's owning aeroplanes. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a good aeroplane ever since for me. But uh, yeah, I guess my advice would be, if you're gonna buy one from the States, do your homework, get on, get someone over there who's reputable that can do the import for you and pay a bit more to get it done properly. Don't try and uh, cheapskate your way through it. And that's a good point about buying it from the States. I mean, we've talked to the pricey guys that bring those aircraft in and make a lot of money doing that. With the dollar the way it is at the moment, a lot of people seem to be looking at that as an option. Are you finding that, Ben, if people bring... Yeah, look, uh, there are a significant number of aircraft which are coming into Australia on a uh, quarterly basis. Um, I believe the numbers uh, for the last 12 months were something like 70 to 80 new aircraft have arrived from overseas. Uh, so there's quite a number of people in aviation in Australia that are taking um, advantage of what is a very unique opportunity and, and we need to contrast the environment within aviation against where we, are, where we are today and that is Australia largely for the last 30 years has been an environment where the Australian dollar um, has not been benched very well against the US. Uh, as a consequence to buy an aircraft out of the States it's been very very expensive. So what has occurred is the aircraft that have come out to Australia have typically been bought out at significant cost. 
um, which has reflected on the prices of Australian aircraft. So for the last 30 years, most aircraft owners in Australia have enjoyed a environment of very little to no depreciation, which is actually very unique considering it's a mechanical capital asset. Uh, things like a motor car will depreciate as much as 30% as soon as you drive it out of the lot and as far as 50 to 60% of total value within the first five years. Um, and traditionally in Australia, aircraft um, being light aircraft, you could have bought yourself a brand new 172 in the 1980s and the aircraft was probably still worth that money by 1996 into 2000. What we're seeing now is we have an incredibly strong Australian dollar. And as a consequence of that, you've got a, a market willing to go overseas. Now, what has made it even more attractive is you have an American domestic market which is incredibly depressed. And you have a economic um, downturn within aviation in the United States that's very significant right now, especially in general aviation. So you have almost like the perfect storm of aircraft pricing, which has actually created a huge opportunity for Australian aircraft um, buyers, um, where aircraft like Bonanza A36s, um, uh, certain types of 182s and uh, 172s, 206s, the typical aeroplanes that in Australia that have been worth, say, roughly 90 to 150,000, all of a sudden you can buy one for 65. So there's a lot of people saying, okay, I want to do this. I want to put it in a container, spend $7,000, have a company dismantle it, ship it, put it back together, and I've got myself a great aircraft. And there's good reasons to do that. It's not a bad thing. It's actually, it's got a lot of positives. Of course, the negatives are, uh, as you've just explained, there are pitfalls and there are many of them. My personal opinion right now is I actually think there, that right now is the best possible time to own an aeroplane. I think right now has the, the environment in aviation has created such a significant opportunity for newcomers to make their first aircraft purchase because all of these aeroplanes are arriving in from the state. So a significant number of Australian aircraft that are higher time are now coming to market and they're coming to market much cheaper than ever before. We have seen on average a 35% reduction in aircraft value prices over the last two years. An aeroplane worth 100,000 two years ago, they're not getting more than 70 grand for this aeroplane today. So if you've got the cash and you've got the desire to be in aircraft ownership, now's a great time. Uh, Steve, obviously one of the things we were speaking about was what is, what is an entry level aircraft that someone can get into and they can spend less than $30,000 doing it. And there are no end of uh, Piper Cherokees, uh, Piper uh, Archers even, um, Tomahawks, Cessna 152s, and you know, the entire lineage of 150s, uh, and also a range of sport aircraft, older sport aircraft, that are on the market, commonly advertised for 20 to 25,000. And I just personally think that these are incredible opportunities uh, for people to get into flying. When it's all about, especially early in the piece, it's all about stick and rudder flying. It's about going out there and getting a feel for it, learning how to navigate the aeroplane properly without just going DCT on the GPS and following the CDI. Uh, you know, I think it's a great time. Oh, no, Steve needs, uh, Steve needs a J3 Cub. <laughs> that I can fly it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll swap you for the pitch, what's, mate. What's a cub worth these days? Yeah. I, know, I know there's lots of different types of cubs. But yeah, look, a, a Piper Cub, you know, it's an incredible product. Uh, it, it, they are not commonly available. 
and when they do come available, they are selling for, for good money. So yeah, okay. we would see them advertised between low end at 70 and upwards of 140,000, depending on, um, I guess, the restoration standard of the aircraft. Of course, you've got uh, cub crafters and a whole range of uh, brand new build aircraft, which will sell for slightly higher figures. Um, but then in Australia, they're not typically an aeroplane that you're going to see on the market too often. They're, they're every now and then versus an aircraft you would expect to see advertised almost month to month. Do you think that the, um, the strength of the Australian dollar generating imports are suppressing the price of the the, the local market of aircraft? Oh, absolutely. We, we, we are definitely seeing in Australia an oversupply of aircraft, and that is definitely hurting um, the aircraft selling market. It is Right now, it is a buyer's market. There is no doubt about that. So there's room for bargaining on, on, Look, on sticker, ab- sticker prices? Yeah, there is. And, uh, you know... This is, this is the point I'm making. If, if you're actually in a position where you can say, right, well, I've actually got $25,000, there are no end of aircraft that you can go out and you can negotiate on. Um, you have a number of people that are getting out of general aviation that want to get into sport, sport aviation, and there are a heap of positives for that. Um, there are, of course, negatives as well, and there are some people that don't want to do the recreational thing. They want to do the GA thing. So, you know, the, the old saying, you know, one, one man's misfortune is another man's fortune, and in this case, the, uh, the value of the dollar, the, the depression of prices that we're seeing um, across the industry on aircraft, I believe, is opening up a fantastic opportunity. And uh, you know, I really think people should be taking advantage of it because aircraft ownership, when it's all said and done, is not that expensive. Um, people have a lot of concern, a lot of fear that an aeroplane is going to cost me the earth. Uh, I'm going to buy a light aircraft and I'm going to find thousands of dollars of bills coming in. It actually doesn't happen like that. Well, that's a question I wanted to ask you because one of the one of the things that comes up, for example, I see a lot of. Now I've got most of my hours in 172, so I'm looking at buying perhaps a 172 or a Warrior or something like that. You're finding in there with only a few hundred hours left on the engine. I mean, that's that's a consideration too, isn't it? I mean, a lot of these aircraft I see have got sort of not tired motors, but relatively high time motors. And I mean, what are you sort of looking at when it comes to maintenance on those and replacement costs for engines, rebuilds, that sort of well, stuff? Well, an 0320, the 150 horsepower 0320 is an incredibly reliable engine, um, and uh, it's a product that will generally achieve, uh, you know, 95 to 100 percent of its uh, TBO. And of course, with the situation being allowed to run on condition, as long as those compressions stay good, uh, and there's no other, you know, physical signs of wear, that engine's going to go beyond TBO um, for for an amount of hours. And I think the thing is, it's all relative to hours. I see a number of aircraft come to market, and there's a psychological thing. As soon as the engine's got 600 hours to run, it's considered to be run out, and that's bizarre because let me tell you, 600 hours is a lot of flying. It's a lot it of flying for a significant it's a lot of amount of flying for a pilot. You, you would have to be taking that aeroplane and flying it uh, up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia um, with some serious frequency to start burning those hours out. And this is the point I make. Buy an aircraft with 600 to run. But you've got to be smart. You've got to take the time and you're going to have to pay the money to have a reputable licensed aircraft maintenance engineering operation inspect that aircraft and do cylinder leak tests and, and do all the items that are going to need to be ticked off so that you can be confident that the engine is, a, is actually going to achieve TBO. Now, that's why the aircraft logbooks and maintenance sheets are an amazing tool. You can see what the oil usage of the aircraft is. That's usually the first sign that there's a problem when the oil burn starts to pick up. You can see what the compressions are at the 100 hourly. You can see a pattern. You just go back through the 100 hourlies and have a look. What are the compressions on the four cylinders? Are they reducing? 
Yes, they are. Have we got one cylinder reducing at a greater rate to the others? It might be a case of only doing an overhaul on one cylinder to get that compression back up. So there's a whole range of inspections you can do that basically are common sense things, the same type of stuff you would do when buying a motor car. If you're buying a good second-hand motor car, you'd want to have it looked at. In terms of once you own that aeroplane, what are the costs really going to be? You're going to have to insure this aircraft. It's exactly like insuring a motor car. And I'm here to tell you, I've got a motor car that costs more to insure than an aircraft. But just on that too, Ben, I understand that when you insure an aircraft, it's based on the number of seats in the aircraft. Is that correct? Uh, a whole range of variables. Not my experience. It's not no. There's no. a whole range of variables, a whole range of factors that the insurance company is going to take into account. Um, use of the aircraft, private or commercial. Uh, is there going to be any training going on with the aeroplane? Um, the predominance you're flying, are you going to be doing it over built-up areas? What type of um, uh, public liability do you want to carry? What type of uh, you know further liabilities do you think are necessary? Uh, replacement values, all these calibratable figures that you can actually work with the insurance company to achieve a result. And again, uh, my strongest recommendation here is you're, if you're interested in buying an aeroplane, go to the trouble and pick up the phone and speak with an insurance broker. Give an insurance broker a call and say, hey, my name is XYZ. I'm looking at buying XYZ ABC aeroplane. This is the type of use and start getting quotes and call a few brokers and get a price on it. And I think a lot of people would be shocked. I mean, I was quite surprised. My father recently uh, bought a 152 uh, Aerobat and uh, I was looking at it thinking, oh, you know, this is probably going to cost a fair bit to insure, but I was actually quite shocked at how cheap it was to insure the aeroplane. And that aeroplane's being used private use. There's nothing abnormal about it. There's really no aerobatic uh, flight uh, time going on with the aeroplane. Uh, and it's basically just like a motor car when it's all said and done. When I, when I got my pits insured, the only question I was asked was, how many hours do you have on pizzas? And I, was, and I was low time on pizzas. I probably had less than 100 hours on pizzas. So then he said, well, where did you do those 100 hours? Who trained you? And what training did you have? So I answered those questions. And he said, oh, yeah, that, that instructor is very reputable. He wouldn't have sent you solo unless you were good so or knew what you were doing and weren't going to uh, hurt yourself. So he was happy to insure me at a good rate. I'm interested in the 100 hourly. Now, the 100 hourly versus the annual. Let's say your pitch comes up for its 100 hourly, its annual, and it sails through and nothing goes wrong. Yep. I mean, how much sort of money generally are you looking at for a, for an inspection like that? Oh, for for a pits like mine, without any defects, probably two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars, and would that be? I mean, is that a similar sort of cost for a one hundred and fifty that sort of category of aircraft? You, you, Steve, you've actually picked on one of my biggest bugbear topics. <laughs> it, and this is I'll make some my, more room on the is, card. Yeah, this is just one of my biggest bugbear topics, and that is uh, the cost of hundred hourlies in Australia. Um, it's amazing that you can take the same aircraft to three different organisations and you're going to get three different 100 hourly rates. And they, these rates can vary. It can be 100 hourly as low as 1,500 through to as much as 3,000, just depending on who you take it to. And I actually think this is one of the most bizarre things that goes on in our industry because the manufacturer typically sets a schedule of what needs to be done to inspect an aircraft for its annual maintenance. And they actually estimate that it should only take so many hours and yet you take the aeroplane to various operators, uh, sorry, various maintenance outlets, and various maintenance outlets will all take different times to complete the 100 hourly. 
and I think this is one of the bizarre things and I, one of the messages I'd like to be sending out to the maintenance community is they really need to be looking at this because the maintenance organisations in Australia play a significant role in um, the uh, I guess the impression of aircraft ownership, the costs of aircraft ownership. People perceive maintenance to be one of the most significant elements of owning an aeroplane. And there is no doubt that there are certain maintenance operators that provide what I would see as being extreme value for money, but there are also operators that do not provide value for money. They are very expensive to get aircraft maintenance undertaken with, and as a consequence, they are driving people out of the industry. They're also driving themselves out of business because the less people that want to uh, own aircraft um, are actually going to end up not having maintenance done. The maintenance business slows down. It's a kind of snowball effect. Um, but in terms of an annual, an aircraft is typically going to run into two elements. You're going to run into a 50-hourly situation if you find the aircraft often enough for oil change and filter change. You're going to have a 100-hourly situation or a 12-month, whichever comes first. And no, it really shouldn't be a significant cost. Most private aircraft in Australia should fall within a category um, of owners looking after the aircraft. And this is another bugbear I have with private aircraft owners. It's amazing that some of these private aircraft owners that I know own very expensive cars and they'll polish the car every every week. They'll take it down to a wax and polish and spend 80 bucks a week having the car cleaned. And they'll, they'll go to extreme details to make sure everything's looked after and there's no scratches on it. Yet with their light aircraft, if a switch breaks, they'll take 12 months to replace it or if the aircraft gets filthy dirty, they're not focused enough to look after it. And I think that a greater care and attention from private aircraft owners in fixing defects as and when they occur, rather than allowing them to accumulate, so you end up with a situation where a light aircraft goes into an annual and all of a sudden it's got a squawk sheet with about 60 items on it, and then of course the complaint that this is getting very expensive, you know, my maintenance bills are getting out of control. Well, this is definitely a topic that we're going to have to uh, continue on with. I've got a thousand more questions I want to get out from this, and I probably still won't own an aircraft in 12 months from now, but uh, I just want something I can get current in. I'm getting very, very frustrated not flying. It's a two-seat pit special right there that they use it as a flying school, mate. You want to jump in that? Yeah, you can organise that for me, mate. That'll sort that'll right, you can take me up on it later. <laughs> <laughs> Aviationadvertiser.com.au. Ben, uh, thanks for supporting this trip up here to the Wings Over Illawarra Air Show. We appreciate your support. Our otherwise. pleasure, Steve. Absolutely. No worries. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways is Australia's most feature-packed, cost-effective and easy-to-use electronic flight bag complete with AIP, URSA, DAP East and West, flight planning and much more. You can even submit your flight plan direct into NAPES. With annual subscriptions starting at only $74.99, it's the perfect flying companion whether you rent or own your own aircraft. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways, know where you're going. The 12th Annual Aviation Careers Expo is preparing for takeoff on Saturday, August 25th, and it's bigger and better than ever. This one-day extravaganza is all about aviation careers, training, and employment. This is your chance to speak to the experts like Qantas, Chopperline Flight Training, Oxford Aviation Academy, Swinburne University, Aviation Australia, and more. Don't miss a moment of the action. Visit the aircraft display, free flight simulator, and seminars. See you on Saturday the 25th of August, located at Aviation Australia, Brisbane International Airport, or search Aviation Careers Expo. 
Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks, and a big welcome back to Kathy Mexted. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Steve. How are you going? I'm very good. You've been doing some reading. I have. <laughs> I have. Look, it takes a while. I'm not a great reader, although I've I've been uh, hooking into it since Christmas. Well, I think so I've read about eight eight books since Christmas. So and uh, uh, Justin's book that we're about to discuss was um, on the list. And the name of this book is Nor the Years Condemn. It's written by Justin Sheedy, and he joins us on the line now from Sydney. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. Steve, and uh, great to be with Kathy as well. Yeah, Kathy, um, reading the article that you wrote for AOPA magazine here, it's a very emotive article, and um, obviously reading the book had uh, quite a profound effect on you. So tell us how that came about before we uh, get into how the book came about. Justin's book came to me through Kresha, who's another writer for the AOPA magazine. And um, I said, oh, yeah, I'll read it because I'd already done a book review for Helene Young, who we're about to interview soon, I think. And it plopped into my email. It happened to plop into my email at precisely the same time that my son had just waggled an Air Force application form under my nose and was frying the onions and he's waggling this form saying, can you sign here? And I shrieked at him, I may as well give them your head on a platter, my firstborn, you know, (laughs) and carrying on. And um, he laughed. I kind of felt like something had been taken from me, you know. And um, he just, you know, I was just thinking, haven't we just finished paying for swimming lessons? Like, did he ever learn to swim? And have we done all the things we're meant to do with him? And suddenly he's off to join the Air Force. Then I checked my emails and there was a bing and was this message saying, you know, here's the book for you to review. And I just started scrolling through and I dialed Justin at the same time. And as Justin answered the phone, I got to the part in the book where the main character, who's Daniel Quinn, had just come home from pilot school and he was coming home for Christmas and he was about to head off to the war, to World War Two. And his mother looked at him walking up the steps and she said in that moment she knew she'd lost her Danny. And I just went, oh, my God. (laughs) And then I burst into tears and then Justin answered the phone. (laughs) And so I (laughs) – and he thought, who's this lunatic? So um, I said, I'll just have to get a glass of water and we'll have a conversation about this. So it took me about five months to get back to the book. I just couldn't get my head around it because I was – you know, in denial about the other. Um, But when I finally picked it up, I read it in about three days and I just couldn't put it down. It was such a gripping tale. And my husband, who um, listeners will know, is a commercial pilot and uh, he loves all that war stuff and he knows it back to front. And so he's really the litmus test for me as to whether the book was true to form or not. And as I'd ask him questions about certain aircraft and certain certain battles or events, you know, asking him if that really happened. And he'd say, oh, just read me the sequence. And so I'd be reading something and then I'd stop because you get a bit tired of reading aloud. And he'd say, don't stop now. You're right in the middle of the battle. Come on, you know, <laughs> bloody women. <laughs> so, um, and he kept saying to me as we drove to Melbourne and back and I was reading all the way and he kept saying, well, what's happening now? What's happening now? So, um, 
yeah, that was for me. That was the measure of a good book, not just the fact that I enjoyed it. Justin, have you been writing for very long before you uh, published this book? Yeah, well, it's my second book. Um, I had my first book come out at the end of two thousand and nine, um, and that was uh, called uh, Goodbye Krakenite um, after the uh, the great Australian fireworks festival Krakenite, which uh, so many of us in Generation X um, grew up with. <clears throat> that magnificent uh, annual festival up there to rival uh, Christmas and your birthday. <laughs> and Goodbye Krakenite was a real portrait of um, of the, the simplicity, the relative simplicity of Australian life um, and Australian childhood and, and society um, back growing up in the 70s by contrast to, to now. And uh, that um, was a real mirror portrait, a real mirror to... Uh, so to a couple of generations of Australians and, and was has been really well received and luckily for my first book it got me to the Byron Bay Writers Festival 2010 and there I'd written Krakenite and um, I had uh, already uh, <clears throat> long since started uh, Nor the Years Condemn um, which was another ambition of mine to broadcast to Australia and to, you know, hopefully an international audience, a great Australian story, um, one that I think really needs to be told. And um, that's the, uh, the story of how in the Second World War, as part of the Empire Air Training Scheme, which so many of your uh, plain crazy listeners will be aware of, the story of how the best and brightest physically and mentally um, in Australia and all across the Commonwealth were, uh, were picked. Only the best and brightest to become pilots, navigators and aircrew. Um, and uh, this was even before Japan uh, had entered the war and um, with all these young men uh, wanting to be the, the top guns, the, the Formula One drivers of their, uh, of their um, generation and with all their um, empire loyalties that they had back then when our imperial masters were different. And um, the, the thing is that uh, the, uh, the terrible tragedy of the story is you have uh, this best and brightest picking one of the fastest ways to die of the war and um, standing up as Australians against Nazism and um, putting an end to uh, an evil empire, um, flying Spitfires, Mosquitoes and Lancasters. You're passionate about Australian history, so yeah. um, it's not totally outside your realm to write a story like this, but why did you choose fiction as opposed to right. just interviewing a pilot and writing a non-fiction story? Classic question, uh, Cathy, uh, um, and indeed I interviewed a whole string of the, the actual Empire Air Training Scheme veterans, and in, I could have written and would have had a much better chance of getting a um, mainstream publication deal here in Australia if I'd written a vivid, non, you know, accurate, faithful non-fiction account. Non-fiction is much easier to get published and, um, in Australia, but that for me would have had at best um, Australians simply reading about the history, simply reading about what happened, why I picked fiction, historical fiction, massively researched, um, is uh, because it's truly through fiction that you can bring a, the, the true history to life so that people aren't just reading about the history but through your fictional characters massively based on the real people your readers are actually entering into 
the history, feeling and experiencing in a way that only fiction can allow. The the in, the uh, stranger than fiction, almost science fiction type uh, experiences that real Australians had. It's through fiction that you can really reanimate the true history. And it certainly draws you in, you know, the reader into the story and the life of Daniel Quinn as he um, takes that journey from, from university student filling out the paperwork at the urging of his mate to when, you know, the last days of the war when he's sitting there reflecting and making peace with the bloke he screamed at in the beginning. Um, yeah. But as a as a non pilot, like you're a non pilot, um, yep. and you managed to capture the experience of the pilots so richly, well, and you. that was pretty impressive. <laughs> I'll just read a bit from chapter three, where Justin's described Daniel Quinn's uh, is his first ride or his early ride in the Tiger Moth. Mm-hmm. Leading aircraftman Daniel Quinn sweated in flying coveralls, leather boots, gloves, and helmet, goggles tight down over his eyes, 28 degrees Celsius at 9 a.m. The sky was clear blue all the way to the horizon where a distant line of clouds walled in white heat, sitting motionless in the forward <laughs> cockpit of the biplane. Whether he sweated more from the heat or from the sheer excitement of the moment, Quinn knew not. He'd never been in an aeroplane before, and from the talk at Bradfield Park, no one else had either. His air crew's selection board had delivered its verdict pilot. Thus categorised, he'd been promoted and posted. Report number four, elementary flying training school mascot. Thank God for the instructor, he vowed. Throttle set. For the ground crew, contact. And for the parachute on which he sat. (laughs) So Justin, who did you interview to get those details? Because you can't make that stuff up. Well, um, all the pilots I interviewed, a Lancaster um, pilot, a Liberator pilot, an Avro Anson slash uh, Airspeed Oxford pilot, a Kitty Hawk pilot and a meeting, an inspirational meeting with a Korean War Mustang pilot um, and possibly one or two others. And all those guys would have flown Tiger Moths um, at some um, spot around Australia, where, whether it was the the elementary flying training school at Mascot or um, they would have gone through Wagga and um, places like Urin Quinty and Narromine, Point Cook and Sale and Summers in, in Victoria, for example. They all would have flown Tiger Moths. The funny thing was I didn't actually speak to any of them about flying Tiger Moths, about their first time um, in flight. So I, I suppose... Really, that account came from my own rare as hen's teeth experience of flying. And mm. um, so, what, were your, what are your flying experiences? Oh, well, yeah, um, yeah. I, I really, I truly did fly in the front seat of a Tiger Moth at the 2007 um, Duxford Air Show for half an hour, and I had the, um, I think, an XRAF instructor in the, in, in the, uh, the rear cockpit, and he operated. I never touched the uh, rudder pedals, but I was fully controlling the um, the stick and feeling just this incredible rush of exhilaration and and freedom. Um, I was sort of set free from a natural vertigo that I experienced <laughs> um, when the guy said, "Yeah, the guy said, you know, you have control." And I was just stunned that with the control, I was freed from a sort of a panic. Um, a a vertigo hitting thermals and so forth. Um, And I became completely at one with this magnificent uh, tiger moth and flew it for half an hour down south of of the Duxford Air Show and then curved it round 
um, and um, back north um, with Cambridge um, on the horizon and then did the big 180 degree banking descent into the final approach and the, the instructor only took it back um, seconds before before touchdown. And um, so that was that that was a supreme moment in one's life, but particularly for a, a non-flyer like myself, and and also a massive amount of home PC uh, flight simulation and World War II flight simulation experience. So for me, when getting into a Tiger Moth for the first time, and the instructor saying, right these are the controls it's this xyz you do this this and this to me i felt uh, incredibly fortunate and just elevated um by the fact that yeah it all made sense yeah i can do that yep 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 it all made sense and um so um that's been the vast majority of my uh, virtual flying experience has been on on, on simulators well you certainly portray it very uh poignantly in the book, you know, when, when he's doing his first training at Mascot. You told me about a meeting, you know, the moment when you decided that you had to write the book was after a yeah. meeting with a guy in a department store in Sydney? Yes, yes. A, um, a distinguished looking gentleman I saw um, 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 of that uh, generation of Australians who still wear um, suit jackets to go shopping. Um, and, uh, <laughs> did you just lunge at him or did you did you just lunge at him or did you bump oh, into him or what look, happened? Um, on an escalator or something. It was in about <laughs> 2000. Um, and yeah. the thing is, I mean, I just march up and talk to people. Yeah, I lunged at him, Kathy. I just do, you know. I, 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 I'm a compulsive interviewer of people. Um, but, but people like veterans um, are, you know, can be amazingly um, willing to mm. talk. And which, yeah. is, which is an incredible thing because you think, well, when you ask them questions about um, what they did and what they experienced, might this open up terrible, you know, pathways to memory? Might it awake, yeah. awaken, you know, ghosts, you know, that have long since been, been laid down in their memories? But, I mean, with everyone, all the veterans I've in, interviewed and met, it's with great willingness great modesty they ex- all exude. And uh, this is the incredible thing, great affection for the incredible experiences they had. And this gentleman, I noticed, I, I somehow got talking to him because we see a lot of the old blokes you know, with their suit jackets out in department stores with RSL um, pins on the lapel. But this bloke had one with bold wings and I in a nutshell asked him what, what that was. And it was for the Royal Australian Air Force Association, um, which is um, sort of like a um, miniature version of the RSL, but for Royal Australian Air Force veterans. And he was um, distinguished looking, fit for his age. Um, and no wonder he'd been, you know, a, a sports star, you know, elite type young bloke who during a career had been exceptional enough to be picked uh, to fly Mustangs in Korea. And I knew from my keen interest even then um, that this meant he was a flyer of ground attack missions with, I think, oh, was it 75 or 77 squadron? Um, anyway, um, this bloke was a Mustang flyer, flew obviously, you know, um, at zero feet at four or 500 miles an hour, having uh, North Koreans and Chinese shoot downwards um, from hilltops, hillsides at him. And this was obviously one of the most dangerous jobs that you could do in the Korean War, as it was with the typhoon pilots that I write about in the Second World War in my book, Northern Years Condemned. 
And despite all the incredible death he must have dished out and come so close to himself, um, despite the friends he must have lost and the, the horror he must have been through, he looked at me and said, Justin, it was the best time of my life. And this was one of those formative, uh, inspirational moments for me that I thought, I've got to write the story of these young guys who had diced with death in piston engine aircraft and went through all they did and yet look, looked back on it, still look back on it with incredible affection. I thought I've got to, uh, to get across this, this monumental irony that they can look back on something so lethal so fondly. And this guy remembered his Mustang and the beauty of it to me. And it, it was like so many, you know, Battle of Britain pilots, our docos you might see, that you have these guys who, who, whose world was a world of death. And yet they look back on their Spitfires, they look back on their Mustangs as if with the fondness of a first girlfriend who wasn't just a nice looking girl, but who was a top flight model swishing down a, a catwalk. What's That's that? every wife at an air show, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah, and, and, and you, I'm sure, Kathy. Exactly. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it, Justin? I think all of us look back on, on, on that time of our lives when we were in our perhaps late teens, early 20s, where we, we sort of look back now and think that was the prime of our life and whatever it is we might have been doing at that time, we look back yeah. as those were the days. It just happened that these particular gentlemen were doing that at that, that, that time in our history when the world happened to be at war. But, um, I mean, many of us yes. look back at that time and think, gee whiz, it must have been a romantic time, but it must have been a terrifying time as well at the same time. Yeah, um, when, when Nick Jagger, for example, was, was asked to uh, you know, encapsulate why, for him, the mid to late 60s was so you know, a golden age, you know, the phenomenal age of, of, of you know, mythical pop culture that it's been remembered ever since. He basically said, well, that's when you were like fit and you, know, uh, you, were, you were just the businessman. You know? And I mean, indeed, this was the prime of their lives. This was when they were... Uh, rock and roll stars, you know, the, uh, the young princes. And um, in good point there, Steve, you had this generation of Australians who were born in 1919, 1920, as opposed to, the, you know, Mick Jagger type baby boomers. And their golden age, you know, they were born into, well, son, here's your spitfire. And there you are. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing at that age, Justin? When you were twenty, I was were, a, a I was years? a rock and roll singer in Newtown in uh, in Sydney in various <laughs> various bands. There you go. That's brilliant. Yeah. What were you doing, Steve? Twenty twenty five. Twenty. Gee whiz, I was living in the US doing my pilot's license. Actually. Oh, there you go. Well, uh, unfortunately, I misspent my youth, but Steve, you obviously made something of yourself, son. Well done. Well, I don't know. I ended <laughs> up driving great. trains, Justin, so I'm not sure the pilot thing worked out. <laughs> Well, you know, people ask me about my life and, you know, would you, and you look back on it and I say, yes, if I could go back, I'd do the whole thing completely differently. Hey, Justin, has uh, in your research for this book, has uh, this given you a, a renewed aspiration to get back into, you know, do some more flying and, and perhaps uh, go towards your licence? Look, I um, don't think at the moment, well, would I have the time, more importantly, the money um, to go and get my own um, pilot's licence. Then again, um, if anyone and everyone listening to um, Playing Crazy uh, has a spare seat in one of their uh, weekend flights, I'm your man. Um, um, <laughs> the thing is, um, Steve, um, I've got to spend my weekends over the next um, one and a half years, conservatively, um, writing the sequel to Norby Is Condemned, which has already begun. <laughs> 
Well, well. I, said, I, I must hit the books, unfortunately, but I will say yes to all research flights. Well, we'll certainly, uh, we'll certainly. <laughs> That's uh, a well-worn path, isn't it? Yes, we'll certainly put the uh, the call out to any of our listeners. You can let us know. Uh, you can help Justin <laughs> with his research. Justin, can you tell us uh, any of the research that you're doing for the sequel? The uh, the sequel deals with one of the characters from um, the first book, Nor the Years Condemned. The first book deals with a character called Daniel Quinn and all the, and all the brilliant young blokes he meets and um, and and flies fights a war on the air with. And uh, this guy, Daniel Quinn, is a young, as was, was representative of, of, of uh, his elite ilk. A lot of them were young rich boys, uh, silver spoon types, whose families um, had the money and time to uh, send them to, um, to private schools and university. They had the time to be, to be sportsmen as opposed to selling rabbit uh, in South Sydney. And he's, he's basically a rich kid, but a great soul. But this, one of the, the guys he meets in Northern Years Condemned, is a guy, is a blue-collar guy called Mikko Regan. And uh, he is uh, a, a 14, he has to leave school at 14 and work like his father had uh, as a carpenter in the Everly rail yards in, in Redfern. And uh, he just turns out, to, he's, he, he's never had the time for sport. For him, like so many of his you know, um, depression era uh, uh, young blokes, it was just survival. And this, Mikko Regan is the, um, um, one of the characters who somehow survives in the first book. And the second book um, is his parallel story through the same war and his, his parallel and very different perspective on his experiences. And he starts off on uh, Spitfires, but then goes on to Mosquitoes. Nor the Years Condemned features at the business end of the book the magnificent Hawker Typhoon and, and with a touch of the Tempest. But one aircraft dear to my heart that I really wanted to feature and feature as the, one of the stars of the sequel to this first book is the de Havilland Mosquito. And um, that's one of the key things that I am uh, um, uh, will have. Well, I've already done a lot of research on and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to making one of the characters Characters of the sequel, uh, the de Havilland Mosquito, and the funny, the re- one of the really nice things is um, one of the early reader reviews of the book, it being a print-on-demand book on Amazon. A guy called Michael High from Colorado Springs in the USA, who I've never met, only through Facebook, he wrote a, a beautiful review where he says um, the planes themselves, you know, about Northern Years Condemned, the planes themselves become characters. And that's one of the most beautiful things up to, to date that I've heard about in the book and one of the most re- rewarding and relieving responses I've had to it. I just wanted to ask you just before we finish up here, Justin, uh, the decision yeah. to self-publish and in fact go to print on demand, I mean, being a tech guy myself, I appreciate that, but uh, was that an easy decision? Was it an easy process? Uh, look, it all came out of um, a seminar I went to at this last year's uh, Byron Bay Writers Festival about e-publishing. At the time, I was uh, having Northern Years Condemned accepted by every major publisher in Australia, well aware that the it, it seems path for the course uh, re any well-received and ultimately successful Australian writer, first knocked back by every major publisher in Australia. 
Um, <laughs> so I um, was thinking, was just waiting till I've got it, you know, um, what might happen with Pam McMillan and Random House and finally Penguin knocked, um, knocked me back at the very, just before Christmas. And they were really apologetic. And I had by that stage bitten the bullet and had Nor the Years Condemned Out as an e-book, which people were saying, go on, you, you, you've got to embrace the e-book technology. And so I bit the bullet. And it, it, um, it just took to uh, get uh, the manuscript into ebook uh, uh, format. Just um, and that was my smash words where the book's available as an ebook. It just took uh, very careful and methodical uh, eye for detail and application to get the, um, the manuscript into the correct simplified format uh, with all the semi-invisible uh, uh, code beneath um, Microsoft Word smoothed out so that it turns into a seamless uh, e-book. And then the print-on-demand thing, um, which was via a, an Amazon affiliate company uh, called CreateSpace. Um, and that, once again, it was doable. Uh, and though for something serious as print on demand, I did um, think, no, I could have done it myself. It just would have taken uh, a, a few months longer. So I engaged a, a very excellent um, uh, e-type setter from Canberra, just exchanging everything via e um, emails um, over over the Christmas period. And in the first week of January, I've got the book um, in um, proof versions coming out from CreateSpace and ready to ship off to, to say yes to upload to Amazon. So it's doable. It just takes care and attention and meticulous eye for detail, which I assume um, will be traits of all your uh, pilot listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. The book is called Nor the Years Condemned by Justin Sheedy, as he mentioned you can find it at smashwords.com just uh, go there and type Justin's name in it's also available from amazon.com I note here as I look uh, in uh, paperback and also as a print on demand Justin uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us this evening really appreciate it uh, thank you very much Steve and thank you very much to Kathy as well for the article as well no no worries Justin Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com if you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com
And welcome back, folks. And uh, I tell you what, it's good to see uh, people getting out there and doing a bit of writing and, uh, you know, Australian authors and getting it published. And uh, if you want to have a look at the article that Cathy wrote about Northern Years Condemn, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes here to her article, which is in the uh, June-July 2012 issue of Australian Pilot. Cathy, uh, boy, now we've had you out and we've had you uh, being busy, but uh, before we talk about where you've been this fine evening, uh, let's talk about aircraft ownership because uh, you've had an aircraft or two up there at your uh, palatial mansion up there on the other side of town. <laughs> yeah, we had the Bonanza sh- briefly, but it mostly lives up in Finlay and is still for sale. Um, still for sale. And the pi- yeah, still for sale. Um, and the Piper Cub that we love lives between here and Finlay as well. It was interesting there hearing Anthony Crichton-Brown talk about uh, his preference for ab initio pilots learning on something like a Cub. I mean, you've got a few hours in the Cub. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I learned in a 152 and then I flew the Archer, which was Dad's plane. Um, and, you know, they're like, they're just so stable and easy to land. So getting in the Cub was a real shock because you've not only got to learn to steer it uh, it's really titchy on the steering and particularly when you're landing, you know, to bring your face down first and let the tail follow or even doing the three-point landing, you know, you've got a much higher attitude when you're coming into land. It just doesn't kind of feel right. But once you get the hang of it, it's great. So you've got a lot more control, but you've got a lot more room for error. <laughs> when it goes wrong, it can go horribly wrong. <laughs> 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 Especially if the wind's coming from the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, so it really yeah. does. It really does bear out what Anthony was saying there. Is that you know it makes you learn to fly properly, and you know if you mm. perhaps if people yeah. started off flying that type of aircraft, as would have been the case, you know, sort of fifty odd years ago, I guess, then it probably would make better pilots out of us. Yeah, well, I wasn't keen to learn to fly the cub. I just. I remember saying, can we just get a 172, you know, like it's the station wagon of the flying world, a good family plane, uh, but Dennis wouldn't have it. And I'm pleased now that I was forced into the Cub and I had a few tears and tantrums to start with, of course, but I got there in the end and I love it now. It's, it's interesting because everybody that I, that I know that's either flown Cubs on any with any sort of regularity or particularly people that own them, they just rave about them. They love them. So there must be something really special about that type. Well, it gets off the ground so quickly. There's hardly any takeoff roll. I start from the strip here. We've got a seven or 800 metre strip or something. And yeah, so it gets off in less than half of that. And you're up and away before you even really know that you've that it's happening. Um, and the same with landing, you know, particularly if you come in with a good, strong headwind, you can touch down. Actually, there's some fantastic YouTube footage if you Google or YouTube short takeoff and landings. Yeah. With the, the Cubs in super Alaska. Cubs, super Cubs yeah. with the Tundra tyres. Yeah. In Alaska, they've got the... Yeah. The oh, yeah. yearly or biannual um, competition—they're hilarious. You can prop see a strikes. few. That's the one. You can see a few prop strikes in that one, and uh, yeah, it's always funny with those big Tonka Tundra tires. They look like a Tonka plane, and <laughs> uh, you know the, they put on the full power. They've got a stole kit and everything, a super cub with a big engine. They put on full power. The tail comes up, and then they release the brakes and they start to move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's me taking off from Astro. <laughs> 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 Not quite. But, yeah, the cub gets up gets up and gets going very quickly and you're on your way. And um, there's great all-round visibility and, you know, it turns on a dime. Yeah, and, the, and the other interesting thing is too, I guess, as uh, Anthony also pointed out there, no glass cockpit. I mean, you'd have uh, a pretty basic layout in your aircraft, I would imagine. Yeah, just the way I like it. That's just it. If you're going for stick and rudder, and let's face it, what you learn initially is what stays with you throughout most of your flying career. I mean, most of us talk about going back to those first lessons and, you know, I can hear that voice of the instructor saying that whatever and smacking you around the head you know all that kind of stuff's there and 
good stick and rudder skills are very valuable, even if you are flying class. And the other point that I made there too is, uh, you know, how I was despairing at uh, the cost of aviation and how it had even uh, got me into looking at uh, perhaps considering this as an option in the first place. And following some other comments that I've made on this subject over the last couple of episodes, uh, one of our listeners uh, from over there in South Australia, Mark Newton, wrote in and and, uh, made some pretty good points too about it not having necessarily to cost as much as you might think if if people consider looking at other sectors besides GA and looking at the sport aviation, the the rotorcraft associations and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he's making some points here in an email that he sent us Grant, or actually a couple of emails that uh, he actually went into a, a pretty uh, low-cost syndicate with a couple of other blokes and uh, bought himself an RV6, saying that uh, for the amount of money that it cost him to do that, it was uh, quite cost-effective. Yes, it does cost money to do it. Uh, he makes the point here, but uh, perhaps uh, you know people are look at looking to get into the game, uh, you know, need not necessarily just look at the GA sector. Even though uh, Ben Morgan was advocating that, well, there are plenty of other uh, sectors around besides that these days uh, that, that are pretty viable options for a lot of people. Well, I mean, if you want to get your bottom off the ground, there's powered parachute. There's hang gliders, there's uh, hot air ballooning, there's gliding. There's all sorts of ways to get your fix of altitude. Um, I've got a few friends who go hang gliding. They love it. Uh, One of them is now becoming a balloon pilot as well. But stop, step back, look at what you're trying to do. If all you're wanting to do is get yourself some altitude, consider gliding. It's a great way to kill a weekend. You can go out, you can hang out. You can spend a lot of time uh, waiting for your aircraft. If you've got a lot of people in the queue, you can spend a bit of time hanging out uh, waiting for the weather. But all the times that I was gliding, when we're on the ground, we were talking flying. Uh, Whether I was marshalling aircraft, whether I was uh, just just hanging out during the fat, we were talking flying. I'd learn a whole lot over the course of the weekend uh, while I was getting my two or three hours in. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, speaking of gliding, we should give a bit of a shout-out too to our friend over there in the States, Steve Tupper, Steve Force. He, he's going out as we record this and uh, getting his commercial gliding licence. Uh, been taking a little bit of stick from that from some sectors, but uh, no, good on you, Steve. Uh, yet another thing to add to the arsenal. Geez, he must have a pretty full logbook, I reckon. He does, but uh, don't forget, he's doing it in a slightly different way to some. He's doing it in a motor glider. So some of the um, glider snobs are looking down at him like, motor glider. And some of the fixed wing guys are going, why are you bothering with a glider? So he's managing to off two uh, groups of snobs there. But you know what? If they're snobby like that, they deserve to be upset. I get that occasionally with ballooning. Oh, ballooning's not really a way of flying. Mate, balloonatics have been looking down on the rest of you since 1783. So, you know, it's this snobby attitude that hurts aviation. People going, I fly a jet, I'm better than you, or I fly a GA aircraft, I'm better than the guys in the glider. Wrong. Everyone's getting the altitude the way they like. We should be supporting everyone in the industry. Yeah, well, I tell you what, Grant. Uh, we don't. I don't think we need to worry too much about that with uh, Stephen Force because, uh, in true style, he uh, hit back at them, and he's been doing so on Facebook. And uh, oh, didn't he just? <laughs> yeah, good on Steve Tupper for doing that. Uh, Airspeed Online. Uh, just look that up on Google, folks. If you haven't checked out his podcast, highly recommended. And uh, I tell you what, that's enough uh, praising up of Steve Tupper. I tell you what, Steve, I'm going to have to send you a bill. <laughs> All right, Kathy, let's move on now, and uh, let's talk about the fate of the Kyneton Aerodrome. And uh, you're off to the council meeting tonight, and uh, some good news there. Tell us how it went. Well, as you know, we only live not far, about five minutes in the Cub from Kyneton. So the Kyneton Aerodrome was built in 1966 and uh, some of the residents who've arrived since then are now objecting to the noise and the disruption caused by the aerodrome movements. But to be fair to them, that noise and the movements have increased dramatically over the last probably 10 years since they um, the aerodrome, the council who own the land that the aerodrome is on have leased the land to aircraft owners and there are now about 33 hangars on the airfield. Um, 
between usually between about fifty and a hundred thousand dollars each that people have put into them by the time you pour a slab and put the shed up and do whatever else you're going to do to it. So um, the council had to do something when they got all these complaints. People were wanting the aerodrome closed. Some people said, can't you just relocate it, which is obviously not an option when you've got all that infrastructure and all that money tied up in it. Anyway, there was 947 letters went to council, mainly from locals supporting the aerodrome to stay. And there are 11 letters sent asking for it to go. But one of those letters included 103 signatures on a petition. So um, they've looked at all the options and one of the deciding factors is that the council had given the hangar owners a two by nine year leases. So for 18 years, the council is obliged to lease the land to the hangar owners um, and they're only halfway through that now. So whether they want to close the aerodrome or open it or expand it or whatever, they have to honour the next nine year agreement with um, people that have those leases. So at the moment, they've said, we're going to keep it and see what happens. Yeah, uh, they're about to go into consultation with the government, with the minister and work out some strategic planning. The council is supporting that the aerodrome stay because it's so valuable, such a valuable community asset. Well, it was pretty valuable during the fires, wasn't it? It was, yes, that's right. 1983, we had the Ash Wednesday fires, um, which consumed Mount Macedon. There's two fires then. And then just recently with the Black Saturday fires, 18 months ago, the aerodrome had, um, you know, the big Elvis helicopter thingy. Yep flying yep. in there and refueling and they have air ambulance because Kyneton is the district hospital and the Aero Club do a wonderful job. One of the reasons Kyneton's so attractive to aircraft owners from Melbourne and um, other airports close into Melbourne is that it's still within commuting distance. It's only an hour from the CBD to come out to Kyneton on the Calder Highway. But um, council only receives eight and a half grand a year from 33 hangars. They're about to put that up to 10 grand and increase it each year with CPI. So it's a very cheap affordable option for anybody who wants to fly and uh, be based close to town. There is talk of returning it to market values so that, you know, they realise that it's grossly undervalued. So I think at some stage the rent will go up and that will give them more money to plan for whatever has to happen next. And one of those options might be um, land acquisition as properties come up for sale around the airport, you know, to give a buffer between Mm. the airport and all the people around, particularly if they decide to go down the route of expanding it. That buffer is a good idea. That really helps if they can uh, get a few of the people who are nearest to it and upset with the noise to sell out. Do we know, is there any uh, interest in that land from, uh, say, property developers? I don't know. It's even though it's an hour out, there's uh, more property being developed out, you know, around Gisborne and uh, Bacchus Marsh area, Melton, all those areas first before I think before they uh, push out to Kyneton, would you say? Uh, well, funnily enough, the other issue at the council meeting, because they had to move the council meeting tonight into the town hall because there were so many people that turned up to support the aerodrome issue. And the other, other things they were discussing was subdivision of farming land and how to try and maintain the integrity of the farms without having a more cut up into 50 and 100 acre blocks. Well, I tell you what, I'm just so impressed that so many people showed up to the meeting and uh, really made a a good case to retain the airport. And I'm even more impressed that, what did you say, 940-odd responses in the affirmative to keep the airport. That has got to be a wonderful result and uh, great to see the aviation community really stepping up and advocating for themselves, really, because it's just not been enough of that going on in recent years. And we've seen so many airports, as I talked about in the last episode, so many little airports are just disappearing here and there, uh, you know, being swallowed up 
by development and all this sort of stuff. This really makes me really happy to know that uh, so many people have banded together here to make sure this airport um, stays running. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty vibrant community over there and I did a story on it in Australian Pilot probably about 12 months ago just on Kiten as a destination. They've got a really active aero club. They've got a really cohesive committee and all the funds that the council get in income from the hangars, they just hand it all back over to the Aero Club and the Aero Club maintain the whole place. And I think every 25 years there's funds put aside and the Aero Club and the council have a commitment every 25 years that they have to redo the um, sealed airstrip, sealed runway. Yep. And so they just, you know, work together. It's a really good working arrangement, actually. Yeah, no, it's a good little layout. You've got two strips, two uh, runways, one sealed and one grass, it looks like, uh, at 90 degrees to each other. Which is really good when you're in the cub. Yeah, landing, off, landing on the grass. <laughs> it's and nice. Avoiding the crosswinds, yeah. Yeah. Now, is that the yeah, uh, Shire of Macedon Ranges? It is, yep. Well, uh, you know, I just want to uh, compliment the uh, the city councillor. You wouldn't hear me saying that very often, would you, Grant? But uh, Nope. I want to compliment the, uh, the councillors for making that decision to keep that airport running. I can't tell you how pleased I am to hear this news. The other thing about Kyneton is um, I remember we'd never really heard of it before someone mentioned it to us. The reason we came out here was because we wanted to be near a small aerodrome and we were living in Melbourne and hated it. We were there for six months and Dennis came home one day and just said, we're getting out of this hellhole. And we'd been looking at Bacchus Marsh, but we just couldn't find a house that we liked. And so someone said, I'll go out to Kyneton. And we came out here and loved it because it's such a gorgeous area. So it was definitely the aerodrome that brought us to the area. And even though we fly from our farm now, we haven't always had the farm. So we used to be based at the airport for a short time, but we still use it a lot for fuel and socializing. And you can fly in there any Saturday and you'll find them all having pies and Neat. everyone comes out of their hangars, you know, <laughs> with their various projects. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. Excellent, That's outstanding. Really well, we, we should get out there one day and uh, record an episode of the show there, Grant. I think that's I'll, a great idea. I'll tell you, the best time to come would be uh, when they have the biggest morning tea. Yeah. Is that, is that May, Mother's Day around then? Sounds about right. Yeah, the Aero Club puts on the biggest morning tea out at the airport and people fly in from all over the place and it's a big day. And you have a cup of tea? I'll skip on the tea. Really? I'll take coffee yeah. though. I'm not a coffee drinker. I don't know. You can always go down to Piper Street, catch a cab, go down to Piper Street in Kyneton. Kyneton's a very trendy little town. No, and uh, Piper Street's pretty well known for it's a big foodie destination. You can always read about that in almost any weekend age. There was something about Piper Street. That was one of the points I made in my story was that the guys can hang at the airport and do their stuff. But anyone who doesn't want to be at the airport can just get a cab into town and there's lots of foodie stuff. There's fantastic bed and breakfasts, antique shops. Mm, there's lots to see and do, wineries. Golf course. And we should mention that the Aero Club out there is, uh, unsurprisingly, the Kyneton Aero Club. And if people would like to find out more about Kyneton Aero Club, they can find that at kyntonaeroclub.org. Grant will pop a link to that in the show notes. And uh, there's lots of information on there about Kyneton Aerodrome if you you're uh, coming down to Melbourne, uh, any of our uh, flying friends, and they, they're looking for a place to stop in, well, uh, you know, now that the uh, community there has shown, uh, you know, how determined they are to keep this place running, I would encourage uh, all of our uh, pilots, if you're flying down this way, to drop in there and support that aerodrome and support the Kyneton Aero Club. Excellent news. Yep. I'd just like to say thanks to all the folks who uh, either heard about it on the show or caught it on our Facebook page and took the time and effort to send in a letter. Uh, well done, and thanks for supporting that. It's great to hear over 900 letters, that's a pretty good turnout. And uh, I'd like to think that some of them were because they saw it on our page. Okay, well, uh, Kathy, what's that? What else is on the uh, the agenda? Are you doing any more writing? How's the book coming along? Hey, the book's going well. I've done the first two chapters yeah. and I've been talking to a publisher yeah. and she's waiting 
waiting for the two chapters, which I'll send next week. Then it's a nervous wait. <laughs> <laughs> now, we haven't talked too much about the book for a while, but uh, you did mention the first time you were on the show with us about the book you're writing. Just remind us again, The Life and Strife of a Pilot's Wife. That's right. It's just a collection of tales from pilots' wives, which um, it's been good fun chatting to lots of women and some guys and collecting the stories, but I'm still collecting stories. So if there's anyone there married to a pilot, be they male or female, with stories of um, moving, I've just finished the chapter called Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which is about moving and moving and moving and moving again. And just when you think you're settled, you have to get up and move. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Um, Kathy is an expert on this topic, folks, because her husband is an airline pilot and they've done their fair share of moving around, it sounds like. Do you know, I've had 15 houses in 20 years. Good Lord. And... I have the next move will be my sixth city or sixth place in 20 yep. years. Now that's very Air Force, I can assure you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't sign up for the Air Force. <laughs> um, one of the chapters is called Down in the Shed, and I'm really looking forward to exploring what's down in people's sheds. And uh, so I'm looking for a Birdman entry because I want to explore, you know, how man's had this fascination with flight since before, you know, God knows, since time began. So I want to talk about how we came to be flying around the place and um, and what it is that keeps us pursuing faster, bigger and higher or whatever it is. Or is that the Olympics? I'm not sure. So down in the shed is going to be interviewing people who do home builds, who do crazy projects. So I've found a guy who's part of the rocket club and these guys stand around, they busy themselves building rockets and then they get together once in a blue moon and stand around in a circle and let their rockets off in the paddock 50 miles the other side of Bendigo or somewhere. I just think that's an amazing thing to do with your weekends. I really want to find someone who's built a Birdman entry. You know, the guys at Moomba who jump off yeah. the bridge. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's just Yeah, and the flug tug, the What's Red that? Bull flug, flug tug, same thing, flight day. Right, okay. So if you can rally a couple of those, the wives of those, or partners of those people, I would love to talk to them. Okay, if anybody has any information on any of those subjects, they can drop us a line here, playing crazy down under at gmail.com, and we'll pass those on to Kathy. Or you can follow Kathy on her Facebook page. She needs more followers there. Kathy Mexted, writing and photography. Well, folks, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, we've uh, gone through quite a bit today. But uh, one thing we've got to put out there is uh, Evan Shu, one of our mates online, he got his navigation endorsement to his RAOs ticket. So now he can actually go cross country in his uh, light two place aircraft. So congratulations. Evan. We're looking forward to, yeah. Yes, there's our studio audience. They're here just just for any eventuality like this, Grant. Sorry, mate. I didn't realize you were keeping them behind that curtain there, but uh, great to see they came out for it. But uh, yeah, congrats to Evan. And uh, we're looking forward to reading all about the the flights that he's going to be doing on his blog, 1000feetagl.blogspot.com.au. We'll, of course, put a link in our show notes to that. But, uh, yeah, congrats again to Evan and uh, looking forward to hearing more. He flies out of Ballarat and uh, he's with Inbound Aviation up there. Ballarat's not far from Kyneton. He could duck up for the biggest morning tea and you could interview him. There you go. Sir Cole Griffin's not too good. I was talking to his mate tonight at the meeting and um, in the story I did for Outback magazine, Cole said, I'll make it to 100, I'll walk it in. Well, I'll try anyway. But at 93, he's had to succumb and get a pacemaker. That's all right. He can still walk um, with a pacemaker. Yeah, I know. That counts. That counts. Still walking. Oh, fantastic. Well, we, uh, you know, we certainly wish Cole well and uh, we can go back to our episode, what was about a year or so ago, Grant, that we met Cole Griffin out there at Point Cook? Yeah, it was... uh... 
It was uh, the RAF pageant earlier this year. Yep, and uh, you know, I tell you what, he can tell a lot of good stories, Cole Griffin. And in fact, uh, it was it was only uh, that he was so busy. Otherwise, we could have been there for three or four hours. He had a lot of stories he wanted to tell us that day. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to go back and speak to him again sometime. Well, that you can usually awesome. find him at Kite and Aerogram as well. So, oh, see, there's a common theme right there. That's- I think the sooner you get to Carton, the better you lot. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, somewhere else we need to go uh, up in August is to uh, Brisbane. They're having uh, our friends up there at uh, Aviation Australia, that's at aviationaustralia.aero, are having an Aviation Careers Expo. Now, you heard us mention that at the start of the show in the uh, the sponsor messages. Now, uh, we know we have a lot of younger listeners listening to the show here considering uh, aviation careers, and as we always point out, there's far more to aviation than just being a pilot. One of the other things they do up there at uh, Aviation Australia is they do a lot of training for uh, flight attendants and cabin crews. So aviationaustralia.aero slash expo. And uh, we'll be talking to the guys from Aviation Australia in an upcoming episode about uh, some of the things that will be going on up there. But uh, Grant, good to see uh, that uh, this sort of thing is going on. We know there's a lot of doom and gloom around the aviation industry at the moment. So uh, it's good to see that people are still out there promoting jobs. Mate, we may be at the bottom of the curve at the moment. Uh, things aren't looking really great, but they're saying that in another few years, we're going to be picking back up and all that uh, requirement for skilled aviation people, uh, technicians, cabin crew, technical crew, uh, even just people doing load sheets, the works, rampies, it's all going to be required. So uh, good to get in now and be ready when it picks back up again. Okay, and as we sign off here, uh, we should mention that we've got a few uh, more interviews that we've recorded uh, to put into future episodes. In fact, uh, Kathy, we've recorded an interview with another author that will be coming up one or two shows from now. Yes, we've spoken to Helene Young, and she's um, going to talk to us about her three books, the third which is being launched in Cairns at the Cairns Aero Club. Was it North Queensland Aero Club at the Cairns Airport in about a week, I think. Okay, which means so anyone have- in Cairns can rock up to the North Queensland Aero Club and um, tell her I sent you. <laughs> we'll also be discussing the uh, ever-changing levels of technology in the cockpit and on the flight deck these days, particularly when it comes to use of devices such as the iPad. And there's also been some really interesting changes announced by CASA in the last few days surrounding Australian private pilot medicals. So uh, Baz and I will be chatting to CASA about that in the next episode. Well, busy times here at PCDU. ATC Ben will be in attendance at this year's Air Venture. That's at Oshkosh, of course, in Wisconsin. Peter Johnson will be representing us at Farnborough 2012 next week. So we're hoping for an interview or two from Aussie or Kiwi uh, companies over there. And make sure you don't miss Peter's new European aviation show, of course, Aviation Extended. That's at aviation-extended.co.uk. But I think that just about wraps this episode up, Grant. I think you may be right there, mate. Cathy, uh, thanks for joining us again. And where can people find you on Twitter and on Facebook? And all those other places. Um, on Twitter, it's Carscribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E. And on Facebook, it's Kathy Mexted Writing and Photography. Or you can just go kathymexted.com.au. Fantastic. And uh, Kathy Mexted Writing and Photography. We need lots more people to follow Kathy on Facebook so, uh, so she can become even more famous. <laughs> so famous. Thanks very much for listening, folks. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But I tell you what, if you're flying out to Kindon Aerodrome this weekend, Grant, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, and Kathy Mexted. You can follow us on Twitter, at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. They, um, the, the, edit, Steve. <laughs> first time tonight. Yeah, there you go. Ding. Uh, What'd you say? First one. No, well, this is going to be a really easy edit so far. <laughs> um, well, just, I, um, see, there I go again, Steve. We've got to edit that. Hello. Hello, hello Steve. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Hey, Christopher, say hello. <laughs> hello. Oh, there you go. Hello, Christopher. <laughs> Welcome to the madness. <laughs> oh, Christopher, Chris is used to it. Oh, thank you. Oh, okay, who do I lose? Not me. Oh. oh, I think she was just plugging her headset in. Line in. Ah. Oh, that sounds better. Mm. about that one? Oh. Hello. Yeah. Oh, it's working. Yay. Leave that one plugged in permanently. <laughs> you are my sunshine, my only. <laughs> you make me happy when Skype is great. Oh, oh, oh well, crikey! Finally, I had my. You'll chance. never know, James, how much I love your headset. <laughs> <laughs> You're not ever getting it back. Please don't take my headset away. He came out in his uh, pyjamas with a torch, met me on the driveway. In the absence of a piece of silver, I handed over two chocolate-coated licorices and we're in business. Oh, God. Yes, he came out of the door and Kathy went. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't actually in his pyjamas, which is... Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, that made me laugh. Yeah, right. Imagine the editing when you get me giggling. Oh, you are, I have. I totally know because don't forget, I edited you and Helene. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. Why do you think I inserted a fresh uh, SD card into the recorder? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm bad podcaster. Bad. Can you- Naughty Bernie. podcaster. <laughs> bad, bad. Is my volume right? Yeah, no, that's perfect. perfect. No, it's too loud. We can hear you. <laughs> you don't make me laugh. You're just silly. And we were all asked to wear hats and shirts and things that identified us as aviation-related people. So, so you wore your PCDU shirt? No, I wore the hat on my oh, fat awesome. head. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. Does this um, hat make my head look fat? Well, <laughs> That's because I just had my hair done. I told you that. <laughs> Is that too much of a mouthful? I didn't let you talk much here, Grant. That's probably a good thing. I think <laughs> the people will love it. <laughs>
So sorry, Steve, you're hearing typing from both of us. Yes, stereotyping. Ah, stereotyping. You stereotyped this, but um. There you go. Okay, I'm going to have to send him a check for that, Grant. I think so. I think he's got to send us a check. Yeah, that's exactly right. The lineies are on him. (laughs) We'll send him your T-shirt, Kathy. (laughs) No, I can fit into it now. (laughs) You can't say that on air. (laughs) That's why we have Steve to record it and play it back later in the bloopers. Edit Steve. Edit Steve. See, I've been no trouble to you tonight, Steve. No, I'm, no, the, model, I'm no. the model student. No, you've been very good. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Sorry. I was in Brighton today. Oh, Brighton. Have oh. I told you that story? No. When I was learning to fly, back way back then, I was up in Tokyo and um, there was, someone had the instructor had a video on approach into Moorabbin and um, he said, no, apparently to be able to fly in general aviation, you need to learn to speak like the man on the BBC. And so he put on this video and the guy said, uh, and then and he was talking about then you come into um, Brighton Pier and you give a call, Moorabbin Tower. My <laughs> <laughs> girl for uniform is a beam Brighton. Brighton. We love after heads off. So I remembered that and then as I gave the call, I'd be in Brighton. Brighton. <laughs> yes, I was in Brighton. Brighton. Yes, that's what happened. And then the instructor and I laughed our heads off. And next thing I knew at Moorabbin, it was all on again. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. Oh, sorry. No, that was Lord of the Rings. <sighs> Drumming fingers. Yeah. I was waiting for you to say it's all go. Well, it is. I'm just waiting for you to shut up. <laughs> saying, wait a minute. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Grant's gone mad. You say this like it's a different thing to normal. 